make your way down there. You go right ahead. And uh, everyone else, uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Esther chapter 2. We're going to be looking at 1 to about 20 today. And if you do not have a Bible, uh, I'd love for you to take the blue Bibles home as your own. We want to gift them to you. That manner, we believe in the Bible, and we believe that everyone who wants a Bible should have access to a Bible. So if that's not you, you we want to give that as our gift to you. We have been uh, going through, you put the slides up there, uh, Ethan. We've been going through a series uh, called My Guardian, which is actually uh, a look at the book of Esther. And we've been theming it God's Silent Protection, because... I want you to see that even though God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, that he's still working, his hand of providence is working behind the scenes in your life and in my life. And I hope that as we tell the story of Esther, you can pinpoint where God is working, where God is moving here and there. So we're going to pick up the story uh, where we left off. And if you had missed the uh, past couple of weeks of church, uh, I'll just want to catch you up on where we are. So we spent the past couple of weeks talking about chapter 1. And the the summary of chapter 1 simply is this. Is a king named Azazarus throws a big party to show how great he is. And during uh, during the party, he commands his wife to show off her beauty in front of a bunch of drunk men. So that's the story so far. She says no. Uh, I want to hit the next slide for me there. She says no, and he dumps her and divorces her for her refusal. And we pick up the story four years later in chapter one, or cha- chapter two, verse one. Now you might be going, how do you know this happens four years after the fact? Well, if you look here, it says in ver- chapter one, verse three, that the party that all this had, that he lost his wife in happens in the third year of his reign. But if you go down to chapter 2, verse 16, you'll notice that he doesn't meet Esther till the seventh year of his reign. So four years have gone by. Okay? And what we know about this is, you know, just a, a little bit of trivia for you, is that in between Esther, or sorry, Vashti's removal and Esther's reinstatement as queen, uh, History tells us that in 480 BC, Xerxes mounts a campaign where he, he mounts about hundreds of thousands of uh, troops to march against Greece. It's called the Battle of Thermopylae, I think, if I pronounced that right. And it's a very famous battle, and Greece defeats Persia and holds them back with about 300 Spartans. That's sort of what happens in 480 BC. So that's a year before he actually meets Esther. So what I want to say, the reason I'm telling you that is because in between the time that he loses Vashti and the time that he meets Esther, four years have gone by, and he loses his wife, and he loses a war he should have won. He's pretty lonely. It says this in uh, verse 1. After these things, when the king of Hazar- when the anger of King Hazazarus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he's regretting the decision that he made. He lost his wife, he lost a war that he should have won. 
And he goes back to the palace, weary from battle, despaired by defeat, and he longs for someone to greet him with arms stretched open, someone who will offer words of comfort and understanding. Now at this point, Hazazarus is not in simply need of another woman. Remember what I told you, he has a whole harem full of other women that he could go to. He actually wants his wife. He wants someone to be near to him through it all, someone who would be his companion, someone who really cares long term. You see, at this point, he's not drunk any longer, and he's thinking clearly now, and he's resulted that maybe my decision is a bad decision. So what winds up happening is the palace uh, attendants notice this, and their solution is to search for another wife. It says this uh, in verses uh, 2 to 4. The king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the province of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in, in Susa, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of all the women. Let their cosmetics be given to him, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and so he did so. Now, I just want to stop for a minute and, say, and point out that this sounds an awful lot like the premise behind a certain popular reality TV series. Does anyone want to take a guess what I'm referring to? The Bachelor. He's getting all these young women from every province. He's about, there's about 127 provinces, so we're not told exactly how many women but let's just assume it's one from each province. That's 127 women who are the most beautiful and most attractive and will bring them forth the king. So that's what happens. They go out and they search for the most beautiful women and the story pauses and we're introduced to a man named Mordecai. It says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shemuel, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who was carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jerona king, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So let me just stop and talk a little bit about Mordecai because he's a big figure. His name is mentioned more often in Esther than Esther's name. He's mentioned a total of 58 times. And he's a descendant of one of the, Jew, of, the, of the Jewish exiles who were carried away at, from Jerusalem to Babylon. So you remember, so just recap, I know that most of us know this story, but God creates the nation of Israel, Israel sins, God says, okay, I'm going to let another nation invade you. Babylon comes in, takes over uh, uh, Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And, he, and when Nebuchadnezzar does that, he takes the entire population and disperses it among Babylon. Well, time goes by, and we meet another king who believes that men shouldn't be slaves. And so he, re, he allows the Jewish people to go back and rebuild his, uh, Jerusalem. You can find that story in Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, <clears throat> but, but here's, here's, here's what happens, right? So all the Israelites now can go back, but some of them don't. Some of them stay. 
And the question is, is should they have stayed or should they have gone? Well, the answer to that is, is in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. So he actually gives a command from God that all Israel is supposed to return. The descent, Mordecai's family does not. They stay. And I think that's an important point to point out because it kind of gives us a hint about Esther's family background and the kind of spiritual maturity that Mordecai and the family come from. And so what happens is, is we're introduced to him and he has someone in his care named Esther. And it says this, he was bringing up Hadasha, that is Esther. So Esther, I want want you to highlight this in your Bibles. Esther is someone with two names. She's got a Jewish name and she's got a Persian name. And she is the daughter of his uncle, for, for they... For she had neither father nor mother, so she's an orphan. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as her own. So props to Mordecai for that. So when the king's order and edict was proclaimed, and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, uh, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, the one who had charge of all the women. And I want you to highlight this in verse 9. And the, young women plead, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her, and her young women to the best place in the harm. So here we know that she is inducted into this uh, beauty contest, if you will. And during the, her preparation time for the king, she has won favor and blessing. And she has advanced to the top of the line. Esther is, uh, is a, uh, we know that Esther is favored by God, I would say. Her name is mentioned a total of 53 times in the book of Esther. She's likely in her late teens or early 20s. Which actually makes this story kind of dark, if you consider that. It goes on to say in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what, he was, what was happening to her. And i got to give props to Mordecai for being concerned about, what, about the welfare of a family member. But I'm kind of curious, and I don't actually think it's a good... Her, his advice to Esther, I don't think, is a really great idea. Because what winds up happening is I think it places her in a place of moral compromise. If Esther's secret places her in physical danger and forces her to sin in order to keep her secret, Mordecai's advice is not good advice. There's a passage in Luke, Luke 17, 6. 
or two, where Jesus is talking, and he's talking about things that cause people to sin. And he says things that makes people's sin are bound to come, but woe to them by who they come. For it would be better for someone to have a large stone tossed or tied around their neck and thrown into the water than to cause a little one to sin. And I'm, I think of that when I think about uh, Mordecai's advice. He's placing her in a very, very, very precarious situation. So the story goes on, and what we're told is that uh, she spent one year getting ready for one night. It says this, now when the term came for each young woman to go, in, go to, to King Azazarus, after, being, after 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices, Anointments for women. That's a lot of oil of all eh? When the women <clears throat> went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with the king, take with her from the harem into the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. Now, let me ask you a question: Are they going on a date? Probably not. Does the evening start with dinner? Probably not. Is King Xazarus sitting before Mordecai and asking permission to date and marry the daughter? Probably not. So they would go in in the morning, and it says this, going on in the text, in verse 14. And in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shagasi. That's the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted her and she was summoned by name. Now, this is where I'm going to say the story gets dark. This man literally lines up hundreds of women. And they are to go in at night and leave in the morning every night. 100, 200, 300, 400, we don't know. Esther's somewhere in the middle of the pile. Your date is set. Here's what's going to happen. You please the king, you win. And if not, you get a nice room in the palace, and you're not allowed to marry anyone else. You're never allowed to have any kids. You're never allowed to see any other man. You just got to live single and rich for your entire life. You might not speak to the king again. You might not see him. You're not allowed in his presence unless he summons you. Your life is plush, but it's not yours. <clears throat> so what's Esther going to do? Well, the text tells us what happens. Esther went in in the evening, she left in the morning, and she won. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had been her his own daughter, to go to the king, she asked nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had in charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning the favor of all her sorrow. I want you to hide that again. Esther is winning favor. Okay. And Esther was taken into King Hazazarus, into his royal palace, in the tenth month, in which in, in the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
The king loved Esther more than all the other woman, women, and she won grace and favor. There's that phrase again. It's now the third time you see it in the text. Among all the other virgins. And I want to point this out because just, just so you understand. It says that the king loved Esther more. And what I need you to understand is we're really not sure what that means. Okay? Because typically when you go to Sunday school and you hear the story, it's that it's the virtuous kind of love. It's like, we're in love, you're so awesome. But this kind of word, I, I didn't pick this up until I read it in the commentaries. We don't really know what is meant by it because it's a general term for love. It's actually the same uh, term used in this story. Okay. How many of you know the story of Tamar and Absalom? Okay. It's a very, very sick and disgusting story. And I'm not going to tell it for you, but I want you to look at uh, verse 1 in that story. It says, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Ammon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister. So he was in love with his sister to the point that he was sick. Now, how many of you who are familiar with the story would say that he really genuinely loved her? Hands up. Nobody. That same phrasing of love is used in King Xerxes. So it can mean anything from... I really am romantically in love with you to the sick kind of statistic love that we see in 1 Kings. We're not really sure. Okay. I doubt it's the real kind of love, given the fact that it's only one night. But moving on uh, in the story. She goes in, she, <clears throat> she goes in, she comes out, she wants. And here's what happens in the rest of the story. It goes on to say that the king loved Esther more than all the women, other women, and she won grace and favor in the king's sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and the servants. So do you remember me telling you that there's a lot of parties and feasting that goes on in the story? Remember what I said that? And in this story, every time that there's a feast, something significant happens. So the first two feasts, remember what happens. Vashti leaves. The third feast, Esther comes. Every time there's a feast in the story, there is a plot. The story may, takes a turn, and we see it here. That's very important for the last thing we're going to say about Esther at the end of the series. So he throws the royal banquet, and what he winds up doing is he says, Look at Esther. She's the new queen. And I want you all to fall in love with her so there's no more taxes for a little bit. It would be like Prime Minister Trudeau getting rid of the carbon tax for a few months. That's sort of what's happening here. So <clears throat> that's the story so far. And, and as we go through it, I want to make a couple observations. And as I read it, I, I want to roll back a minute and I want to talk to you about compromise. As you see, I know a number of people who have confessed faith in Christ and then decided they, they wanted to get married, but they didn't uh, confess their faith to their new spouse. 
And in order to do it, in order to be married, they are willing to make compromise. And so we sort of see that this is going on in Esther. I know people who in their businesses uh, knew Christian principles, knew what the principles of the word were, but decided, I won't let anybody know about my Christian faith because it's going to get in the way of my business activities. And I don't want to be encumbered by that. I know people who in their leisure activities have been people who have had the same hobbies and passions that they do, and all the time they never let anyone know about their commitment to Christ simply because it gets in the way and they don't want anyone to know. We see this thing kind of happening all the time, and I think what I see is that I see it in Esther. Okay? I know the Bible gives us no evaluation, but I tend to, I, I love Esther. She's a great, great hero of the faith, and I would say that she's one of my heroes. But at this specific point in the story, I tend to see her as a woman who is easily making moral compromises to save her own life. But I want you to catch that God gives her favor anyway. It's almost like she's a woman by two names. She has her Persian name and she has her Hebrew name. And she's kind of living between these two identities. She's got two names and she has one foot in one camp and one foot in the other. What does she go by? Well, she goes by both. She lives by two identities. She's conflicted. I think she's a compromiser at this point. She belongs to God, but she doesn't actually do it publicly. Okay. And so I know that this actually makes a little Esther a little bit hard to interpret it. And here's what I want to say. If you compare Esther and Daniel, they are put in almost very similar situations, but they react totally differently. They are both people living in exile. They are both orphans. And they are both put in the king's service. And both are put into a situation that if they don't obey the king, bad things are going to happen. Daniel made public his Jewish background. Esther kept it silent. Daniel objected to the food because it broke God's law. Was the food provided to Esther kosher? I doubt it. But she couldn't object to it without giving away her heritage. I mean, she could have eaten it. She could have just like not ate it and accepted it and tried to keep it quiet, but she's supposed to look beautiful, and so I would think a year of anorexia wouldn't, people would notice. And what about the beauty treatments that are in keeping of a woman of godliness that we find in the Old Testament? <clears throat> is Esther fulfilling those? My answer is I doubt it. And what about the one night with the king? Well, you might say if she doesn't do that, she's not going to survive. Well, that's true, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also put in a situation where if they didn't obey the king, they would die. And you know how that story goes. They simply said, the Lord is able to rescue us, and if not, we will not bow down the king's aisle. Let the king kill us, I mean, there was an act of courage, whereas Mordecai actually says to her, don't let anyone know who you are. Keep it a secret. And so I think that she's a fence-sitter. She's a woman who lives dual identities. But the thing about it is, 
is that she has dual identities, but if you remember what I told you to do, I wanted you to highlight every time it said that she had grace and favor. That even though that she was living this dual lifestyle, God gave her grace and favor. Esther is hiding the fact that she's a believer and she's eating food and dressing in a way that she's not supposed to in order to keep it a secret. <clears throat> and yet God has gave her blessing. And the truth is, is that your life and my life can sometimes be like Esther's. Amen? We can, we can be, we can have a dual identity. You've lied, or I've lied. You've been in a relationship that you're not supposed to. We've been divorced, but maybe you're not legally divorced, but you act like you're divorced, but you're still a Christian. You've lived a life that's compromised, and you've, you, you've, you haven't made public your faith because it would hurt you in the end, and you've kept a foot in both worlds. You have a foot in the non-Christian world, and you have a foot in the Christian world. You are a person that is living by two names, two dual identities. <clears throat> and you know what? I want to say that I actually grew up like Esther. I lived in two worlds. Because in my story, I grew up in a Christian environment, in a Christian school, and I did all those things. But I didn't really want to be associated with Jesus because church people were boring. And my non-Christian friends were having all the fun. So I lived a dual identity. And so what I want to say this morning is I actually find great encouragement and hope in the book of Esther. Because here's what happens. I don't want to spoil the end. Well, you guys know the story. But if you know how the story pulls out or turns out, she moves from making all the wrong choices and somehow God gets a hold of her and suddenly she realizes that she can no longer be in that place. Suddenly she realizes that she has to take a bold stand and she's going to walk into the king's throne and if it costs her life, she's going to die for the sake of preserving God's people. See, that's Esther. Suddenly things change. She goes from being a compromised woman who has a set of convictions. At one point in the story, it's almost like at this point in the story, Esther's life is like a river and everyone's making the decisions for her, King Hazazarus and Mordecai, and she's just kind of going along with it. But at some point, that changes. She becomes a woman of principle and courage, and she's being used by God to rescue her people. I need you to understand how crucial the story is, because a lot of the times we read Esther and go, that's a nice story. But without, without Esther saving her people... There is no Jewish people, there is no Israel, there's no Messiah. Esther is a pivotal point in the Old Testament history. <clears throat> Esther's life teaches us that we don't have to live in defeat all of our lives. I don't know about you, but if you've lived a compromise in your life, uh, compromise, ask yourself this question. Does that mean I need to be a compromiser for the rest of my life? I want you to understand, and I want you to hear this very clearly. 
is that Esther's life teaches us one thing, and that's this. God can use imperfect people to perfectly save his people. Amen? Amen. He uses the faithfulness of even morally and compromised people to accomplish his purposes. God can use anyone he wants to, no matter how fractured or broken or flawed, and he creates miracles from the most unexpected sources. You don't need to be perfect to introduce people to Jesus. There's a uh, movie out there, and I, I love Christian movies, and I, I don't want to bash on this one, but there's, there's one called One Night with the King, and it's the story of Esther. And in that movie, they portray Esther as sort of this super godly woman. And I'm not saying she's not, but in the story, she's leading Bible studies in the harem. She's praying. She's telling people about God. She goes into the king with one night. And she's so godly that the king just can't do anything immoral with her. Is it possible that that's how the story played out? Yes, but I hope not. Because what I tend to think is that you and I tend to read a lot of a religiousness into Esther. I really hope that that's not the version of Esther, because if that's the story, then I, what that teaches us is that I have to be my own savior. I've got to be the hero in my own story. I have to get all the things that I made straight, right, crooked. And what happens is, is what if you can't fix it? So here's Esther, and the story goes like this. The religiousness that we read into Esther is this. There are good people, and there are bad people. God likes good people. He hates bad people, and he uses the good people and not the bad people. And if you know the story of the gospel, you know that the Bible says that none of us are righteous. None of us make the cut. This is a very important question because it frames how we interpret the Bible. That if that's how you are, you miss the entire message of grace. That God loves the undeserving, that God uses the undeserving And that's great, because that means that I have a chance, and you have a chance. But if we read that, you know, only God uses the perfect people or the godly people, and not the people who are broken, not the people who have a past, then what winds up happening is that we give in to pride or fear. What happens with the religious interpretation of Esther is that we miss all the parts of sin in the Bible. So, for example... We think that Abraham is a good man of faith. He gave his wife away two times. Just to save his own skin. Paige, would you be okay with that? No. Okay. Or you take Noah. Noah was a godly man. What what was the first thing he did after he got off the boat? He got drunk. Okay. Or you take David. David, who is a man after God's own heart. But we all know the story. He loves another man's wife, gets her pregnant, and then tries to intoxicate the husband so that the blame doesn't raise on him, but on his wife, or on him. And then when that doesn't work, he kills him. But you might say that David repented. Yes, he did. But do you know what his last act as a king was? 
On his deathbed, King David puts out a hit order and asks for assassination of his enemies. This is a guy who we sing his songs at church all the time. And so what happens with pride and a religious reading of Esther is we miss all the parts of the story that have to deal with these godly people who are broken. And we tend to think I'm a good person, that God uses me. And the truth of the matter is, is that God uses you because of his grace. Not because you measured a bar, not because you're more moral than everyone else. Going on, or the other side of it is, is like when you give a religious interpretation of Esther, what winds up happening is that, uh, well, let me go through this a little bit. Uh, okay, here we go. I'll just finish with this. Is that we can give into despair. So if we live in, so if we read that Esther is this perfect person who does no wrong, what winds up happening is that we give into despair. And so you and I, we have things in our past. And we simply say this, is that because of my past, God can never use me. I've made too many mistakes. I've done the wrong thing. I've, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a wash up. I'm a screw up. God can't use me. A number of years ago, um, someone came to church and said, I want to I wanna be a part of church and I want so desperately to be used in God in some way. Can I, can I help out in the children's ministry or the youth ministry or the worship team? And, and they said to me, I have to tell you something, I'm divorced. And it was my fault that I got divorced. It was a sin. Can God still use me? Esther teaches us that it's not too late. God can use anyone he wants to because some of you need to hear that because you have a past. And you think that because you've made a secret or you have this secret in your closet, this, this sin that you can't tell anybody, that you're going to share, take with you a grave, that God can never use you. And I want to tell you that in my estimation of Esther, Esther begins the story by making morally compromising choices, particularly about the food and dress. And yet, she is given God's favor. And so the book of Esther asks us if we are being willing, if we are being, if we are willing to do something about the compromises of our life. If, even if you've been a fence-sitter your entire life, there can be this one moment where you say, and I say, no more compromise, no more 50-50 measures, no more, I, <clears throat> no more of this. I want to make sure I'm taking care of all the people of God and, and I'm living my life for God. And so the compromises ends today. And it's time for us to look back at our lives and say, I want to be a man and a woman who stands with God and who has the courage to stand according to the principles that God has given me. That's what Esther teaches us, is that no matter if Esther is a perfect person, a compromised person, or she wasn't a believer at all, God still gave her a chance to be used. 
in a very powerful way. And you want to know why I believe that? Because I, friends, think that Jesus is the better version of Esther. Like Esther, Jesus grew up far away from his home. Like Esther, Jesus grew up in an ungodly kingdom, the Roman Empire. Like Jesus, or like Esther, Jesus' identity was largely unknown for the most of his life. Like, like Esther, Jesus was an unlikely choice for royalty. And like Esther, Jesus stood up to the, save his people from death. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16 says that he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. So you have Jesus and you have Esther. And Esther is a person that God uses to save her people from death, but she's compromised. And then yet you have Jesus over here who is put in similar situations and never sins and never does anything wrong and is tempted as we are. He's the perfect version of Esther. And what winds up happening is that Jesus dies on a cross and he takes all the mistakes that you and I make and he puts them on his body and he says, I'm going to pay for all those sins. And because he did that, you and I can now stand in his righteousness and stand in the righteousness that is given to him so that when you and I have that past, when you and I have those things in our life, that we're ashamed of, that we say, God can never use me because I compromised or because I sinned or because I'm a fence setter. Esther's story tells us that God loves and redeems and uses broken people. God has, can breathe his spirit and give us a white hot passion for the things of God and for God's people. And I want to end by this, is you can pray and say, Lord, I don't want to be a compromiser anymore. You don't have to. I want to be a part of the people, God. I want to be used by God. Esther tells us that there's redemption for those of us who make mistakes and are compromised. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. And I pray that as we go through the day, our week today, that you would move in our hearts that we're so thankful for the grace that you've given us. That even though Esther is an imperfect uh, person, she is used by you to save her people. We're so thankful for that. In Jesus' name, everybody says.